All right, grab Bible, turn to the book of Acts and chapter 9, please. Acts chapter 9. This will be our uh, last message in Acts for a time. Uh, Advent starts next week, if you can believe that. Uh, Starting the Christmas season already next Sunday. So, um, Acts chapter 9. Uh, Today we'll be looking at Saul, a man named Saul. And if we look ahead a little bit to Acts chapter 13, verse 9, it tells us that Saul was also called Paul. And so Saul had two names. He probably had both names from birth. Saul would be a Jewish name, and he was Jewish, so he was given the name Saul. Paul would have been a Roman name. He was also a Roman citizen, even though he was Jewish, and so he had a Jewish name and a Roman name. And so from Acts chapter 13 and 4 throughout Acts and then through uh, basically the the rest of the New Testament, he's referred to as Paul. And so there's a reason for that. The reason is that from that time forward, he was preaching and ministering mainly to Gentiles, so his Gentile, Roman Gentile name, Paul, would have been used. But Saul, Paul, is the apostle Paul who planted churches, wrote much of the New Testament. And so if you hear me say Paul today, even though the text says Saul, just understand that we're talking about the same person. I'll try to use Saul as much as I can. So as we look at Saul today, Uh, there will be aspects for you to consider in which you should see yourself in Saul. Okay? So look for yourself in Saul. There will be other aspects where you should definitely not see yourself in Saul. Okay? And so we'll look at some of those things. There are some things that are specifically uh, pertaining to Saul and not not to you individually. And so we'll look for those things a little bit. So let me pray and then we'll read our text here. Father God, we invite you now by your spirit to do a great work in our lives. Help us to see you and understand you more. Uh, Help us to know you more. Uh, Let the truth of your word and the the preaching of it uh, work and move in our lives that we be changed into the image of Christ more and more for your glory. And so God, do your work among us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Acts chapter 9 starting verse 1. And we're going through verse 31. So we have a little longer text, so hang with me as, as we I read through. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. 
And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed amongst, against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Uh, a quick note, not that it's overly significant. Um, in verse 23, we see that many days have passed. From Galatians, we learn that that was about three years. Saul had gone to Arabia, back to Damascus, about a three-year time period there. So as we're working through the narrative, uh, just make that note. But the first thing we're going to take note of here is a great sinner. We see a great sinner. We see this in Saul starting in chapter 8 uh, uh, in the murder of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, right? We saw in chapter 8, verse 1, that Saul approved of his execution. And then verse 3 says this about Saul. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
So imagine Saul, under the authority of the religious leaders, breaking into your home this afternoon and forcefully removing whoever they find, men and women, from your home. Husbands and wives taken away. Fathers and mothers taken from your home in order to throw you in prison and lock you up. Now, presumably this happens and the kids are just left to fend for themselves, right, as far as we know. And the simple reason that this happens to you this afternoon is because you attended a worship service here at Pine Grove this morning. That's the only reason. You're following Christ. And so you get dragged away and locked up. Are you ready for that type of persecution to come? Do you have the faith to endure it? Do you have faith to stand in that day? Sorry if I just ruined your afternoon. But this is the type of man that Saul is. This is where he is at. This is his zealous nature coming out, his zealously opposing the church of Jesus Christ. But he's not done there in Jerusalem. He's not done yet. He wasn't satisfied. So now beginning in chapter 9, we see that he is breathing threats. He's breathing breathing out murder against the disciples of the Lord, right? So he is continuing. This is the mindset of Saul. This is his motivation to persecute and to put down the name of Christ. We see here in this verse that Paul went to the high priest, right? So Paul is being active in this, right? He's initiating. He's carrying out purposeful actions. He wasn't coerced into doing this. He wasn't talked into it. He went simply because of the sinfulness of his heart. Saul had a sin problem. The problem wasn't that he was misguided or confused. It wasn't that he grew up in the wrong time or the wrong place or with the wrong family. It wasn't that he didn't have the right education. The real problem was sin. Saul had evil desires within him that he then acted out. This is what's happening in his life. And so chapter 8, he was in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Now in chapter 9, he's going to continue. He's going out to the city of Damascus to continue doing what he had done in Jerusalem. So he's going to continue imprisoning people, beating them, murdering them, Men and women who follow Jesus. So as he's going, this city of Damascus is miles away. Uh, straight line, it's about 135 miles from Jerusalem. It would have taken him probably a couple weeks to travel just to get there. And so Saul was going to any length needed. He was sparing no inconvenience for this purpose in order to go after the disciples of Jesus to imprison them and murder them and destroy the church. Saul was opposed to the work of God, and he hated God's Son, Jesus Christ. This is the the man that we're looking at, that we're seeing here. So let me ask you here this question. Does Saul deserve salvation? No, good answer. Not at all, does he? Does he deserve God's mercy? No. Does he deserve God's love and blessing? 
No, what is it that he deserves? We talked about it up here. Death. He deserves death and hell because of his sin, right? And we would say amen. He deserves God's wrath, God's eternal punishment for his sin. That's what he deserved. Now, this is one of those instances when you need to see yourself in Saul. This is you apart from Christ. You are Saul. Now, of course, you'll say, well, I never did that. I never did those things, the things that he did. And you may not have. But your heart and your sinful condition was exactly the same. Filled with evil, filled with sin, carrying that out. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is a letter that Saul, Paul, wrote at a later time. And he's explaining a person's state before coming to Christ. Right? So he's explaining what this person is like. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this wasn't just Saul. He writes, this was you. This is you. You were spiritually dead in your sin. You followed the devil in disobedience to God. You lived out the the passions of your flesh. You carried out in real actions your sinful, evil desires. And due to your nature in Adam, you were a child of wrath, deserving God's eternal punishment. This was you. You were Saul. So you need to understand who you were in order to appreciate the great salvation of God. To understand all that God has saved you from. So here in chapter 9, we find Saul, a great sinner. And here we find you, also a great, uh, a great sinner, spiritually dead, completely unfit for God, and totally unable to do anything about it. This was you. But then we see a great salvation. A great salvation. Look what happens. So a light from heaven suddenly appears, right? This great light from heaven comes and appears. This is no ordinary light. This is a light that knocks Saul to the ground, knocks him down. So we have this heavenly light, and Saul calls him Lord. Who are you, Lord? Saul acknowledged that this presence was the Lord, and Jesus names himself, right? I'm, I'm Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is light. This great light from heaven is a manifestation of the risen Christ. It's Christ's presence coming to Saul. Saul saw Jesus. 
Now, is this a normal circumstance? No, it's not, right? So we have to take note of that, right? The other thing to take note of is who initiated this extraordinary encounter? Who, who came and initiated it? It was Lord Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus initiated it. Was Saul looking for Jesus? Was he hoping to find Christ? <laughs> no, not at all. The opposite, right? And so Jesus initiates this encounter. He comes and he asks, why are you persecuting me? Saul so never really answers that. Maybe it's more of a contemplative question. But let me ask you again, what does Saul deserve at this point? Death. Yeah, hell, destruction. He deserves for Jesus Christ to come and just crush him under the weight of the holiness of God. That's what he deserves. Is that what Jesus does? No. No. Now, we know from other passages of Scripture that Jesus, when he comes here, he actually preaches the gospel to Saul during this encounter. It's not specifically recorded here in Acts. Saul, later in giving his testimony, tells about more of what Christ told him during this time. So Saul hears the gospel preached to him by Christ. Jesus then tells Saul to stand up, go into Damascus, the city you were heading to, into, and wait for instructions. Right? Get up and go and, and wait there. So Jesus here intervened in Saul's life to bring about a great change. Saul was on one path in life. He was heading this direction. Jesus comes and flips him right around in the opposite direction. And so with that, one of the things we see is that Saul is greatly humbled. Right? Saul was very prideful. He thought he was doing God's work. Right? And he's going about it very pridefully. But now we see him very humbled. Right? How do we see that? Well, first he's blind. He can't see. That'd be humbling, wouldn't it? That'd be a humbling experience. Saul had to be taught that he had spiritual blindness to Christ and who Jesus was. Jesus took away his physical sight so that Saul could see and understand spiritual truth. So Saul is humbled by blindness. He's also humbled in that he has to be led by others step by step so that he wouldn't trip and fall flat on his face. That would be humbling, wouldn't it? Every step, he needed a hand to lead him and to guide him. And so Saul, in his power, had been leading a, a movement of persecution against the church. But now he needs to be led by the hand just to, just to take the next step, just to get to the next place. And so all of Saul's power and authority was now taken away from him. He wasn't even able to feed himself or to to take a, a drink, to find a glass of water. He was greatly humbled. And then in this, he goes into Damascus. And in Damascus, we see a faithful servant, right? There's a faithful servant in the person of Ananias. Now, this Ananias is different than the Ananias from chapter 5, right? That Ananias fell dead, was taken out, buried. This is a different Ananias. Now, Ananias is understandably concerned, Right? He's concerned. He has a level of fear because of Saul's reputation, right? Ananias knows what Saul's about. He's, he's heard all about it. 
And so God comes to him and says, go to Saul. And Ananias says, I'm not so sure about that, God. Right? And yet, what did Ananias do? He went. He obeyed, didn't he? So Ananias had a fearful obedience. Right? This is a good example for us. There's times when God asks us or tells us, commands us in his word to do hard things, fearful things. But God is trustworthy. And so we can have, even in fear, we can have a fearful obedience. But what did Ananias have to know? Ananias had to understand the power of God to save sinners. Right? Ananias understood the power of God to save sinners, that God was doing something in the life of Saul. And so do you believe that? Do you believe that God actually has the power to save sinners? Do your actions, the way you live, show that you believe that God has the power to save sinners? So Ananias, in faith and trusting God, goes here to Saul in obedience, and he says, Brother Saul. Wait a minute, brother? Brother Saul? Brother is a term of family, of togetherness, right? Ananias lays his hands on Saul. He gets really close, physically close, touching him to this murderer, this persecutor, right? There's a sign of physical touch, a sign of acceptance. Again, Ananias believed, believed in Saul's conversion, believed that he had come to faith in Christ, not because he trusted who Saul is, but because he trusted who God is, because he trusted in God's power to save sinners and to radically change them and make them new. Ananias was a man of great faith, right? Great faith. And next we see there's a new life, a new life. Verse 18, we see that new sight is given by God, right? Saul regained his sight. He was made new. There was a transformation from spiritual darkness to spiritual light, right? Saul's physical sight was restored. That's good. But more importantly, spiritually, he was made new. He was born again. He had spiritual life. And then we see also in verse 18 that he was then baptized. He identified himself with Jesus. He publicly affirmed his new faith in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. Think about Saul being baptized. He was headed to the city of Damascus to bring oppression and persecution to the name of Jesus, to try to destroy the church. And now only a few days later, he's getting baptized in that city in the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't God, I don't know if it's a sense of humor, isn't God great, (laughs) right? Saul's going to destroy the church in Damascus, ends up getting baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in Damascus. Amazing. Now think with me, how was Saul converted, right? How did that happen? It wasn't because he thought it was a good idea, right? It wasn't a choice that he said, well, those Christians aren't so bad after all. I think I'll join them, right? Why did it happen? It happened because of God's sovereign choice and his mighty power to save. That's it. 
That's it. Salvation is only possible because Jesus Christ died on a cross for sin and rose again to life, and this is the power to save. That's it. There is no other power to save. Saul, this great sinner, had this great salvation simply because God made it happen by his choice. Saul now has a different life. He has eternal life, right? Again, this shows us that no one is beyond God's power to save, right? No one is beyond God's power to save. If anyone was, it would have been Saul, right? So the sinners that you know, that you interact with, that you're aware of, that are in your family and in your workplace and in your school and in your community, those sinners, none of them are beyond God's power to save. The sin that you recognize and that you see in your own heart and in your own life does not put you beyond God's power to save. God is powerful to save, and he delights in his salvation. Now, these things that we note of Saul, note that are true in him, new life, all this, this is also true of you if you are in Jesus Christ. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. We were just there. Turn back there. Ephesians chapter 2, so first three verses. This is who you were. Now, verse 4. These should be familiar verses to you. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And God raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is God's power to save and to transform and to renew. Saul was saved by God's grace through the faith that God gave as a gift to him. And that's the only way anyone can ever be saved. God did it for Saul. He did it for you if you're in Christ. It was a work of God. And so remember, you should see yourself in Saul in some ways, right? You should see yourself in Saul as a great sinner. And you should see yourself in Saul as receiving a great salvation. However, circumstances are probably different, right? What do I mean by that? Saul's salvation experience is not normal, right? Pastor Jeremy has been telling us that much of what we read in Acts is unique to a specific time and to a specific place and to a specific people. That's the case here. Just because you haven't been knocked down to your knees by a blinding light doesn't mean that you aren't saved, right? So if you're doubting whether you're saved or not, simply turn to Jesus in faith, trusting in the work of his death and resurrection for 
you, to save you. Turn from your sin, repent of it, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Don't look for a great light from heaven. That was an unusual circumstance. Many of you here don't even know a specific time or place when you were saved, right? You just know that you have faith and confidence in Jesus now, and that's enough. That's salvation. You're saved through simple faith, not through a great story. So we see a great salvation with Saul. Next we see a great purpose, a great purpose Look in verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Saul here is a chosen instrument to do what? To carry the name of Christ, to carry the name of Jesus all over. And so Saul, later Paul, was chosen by God to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, and all around the world. He was saved for a great purpose, to spread the gospel to the Gentiles all around the world. Paul, Saul, later named Paul, would be known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Right? And so this is a, a great purpose. This is why his, his, the circumstances here are so unique, so unusual. God's covenant had always been for the Jewish people, Right? With the Jewish people, right? Throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people were God's chosen people, right? But now, now there's a major shift. The gospel is now open to Gentiles as well. God has opened salvation to all. And the one who so intentionally and violently persecuted Christians was now to take the gospel far and wide to all people. Right. How was he to do this? We start to see it play out even in the passage that we read. Right? Verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus, uh, uh, excuse me, Saul is now proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. Jesus is the Son of God, he's telling people, right? Verse 22, he's proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament really, really well. Right? He knew it really well, and now he shows how Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ fulfills all the Old Testament scripture, and he's telling everyone in the synagogue, he's telling the Jewish people this, look, I can prove it to you, right? Verse 28, he's preaching boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem. So how is Saul to take the gospel all around the world? Well, it's through preaching. It's through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how the gospel will go all around the world. This is what God uses to bring about faith and change in people's lives, to bring about salvation. And so as, Paul, as Saul preached, he ended up establishing churches and writing much of the New Testament. Turn uh, over to Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20. Saul, we get a picture here of his, his words telling about what he sees as his purpose. Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. This is Saul, Paul. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value 
nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's how Saul viewed his purpose now in life. It was simply preaching the gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus far and wide to all people. Now, there's a temptation for you here. Okay? A temptation. As I mentioned, not everything in Acts is for you specifically. Right? Saul was a chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles all around the world. Is that also true of you? No. <laughs> no, the gospel has gone around the world. It's gone to the Gentiles. That's no longer for you, right? This was unique to Saul. But what happens is oftentimes you may be tempted as you read your Bible and see all the great things that God has done among his people and you desire that for yourself. Have you ever, any of you ever done that? Couple, right? I wish I had a conversion experience like Saul. That would be great. Right? I wish I could preach the gospel and see thousands be saved at a time. I wish I could hear God speak to me in a burning bush like Moses. I wish I could kill a thousand enemies with the jawbone of a donkey like Samson. I wish I could slay a giant and cut off his head like David. That'd be great. But all of these things are not normal. They're unique. And your desire for them is purely selfish. You want it to be about you and not about God. The reality is that the vast majority of God-honoring people in the Bible are just normal. Thousands upon thousands of nameless people not recorded in the Bible, living faithful lives to God's glory. That's what most people in the Bible are, even though they're not named, right? They're working hard at their jobs to God's glory. They're working hard at maintaining good, healthy marriages to God's glory. They're raising children to God's glory. They're managing their finances to God's glory. They're doing well in school to God's glory. And this is what the vast majority of you are called to, right? You're called to work hard and be faithful in all the normal, everyday activities. It's that simple. Your normal, non-extraordinary life brings God more glory than if you were doing something extraordinary. Do you believe that? Your normal, everyday life is bring God more glory than if you're doing something big and extraordinary for God. Otherwise, he'd have you do that instead. Otherwise, he would call you to that. But your life brings God glory, so be content with that. Be faithful in that. God is glorified in you living a life of faithfulness according to his word in normal, everyday activity. So be normal. Be normal. Turn over to Titus chapter 2 real quick. Towards the end of your Bible. A little bit before Hebrews. Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read starting in verse 11. Titus chapter 2, 11, starting in verse 11. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay, what happens then? Salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is why God has saved you. This is your purpose. If you want to do great things to God's glory, fight against ungodliness and worldly, worldly passions in your life. That's to God's glory. Learn to live self-controlled and upright. That's God's good work for his glory in your life. Learn to live a godly life and do it with a view of eternity. Right? This is God's great purpose for you. So back in Acts, we have a second purpose for Saul and his salvation. That is to suffer. Look at verse 16. The Lord still talked to Ananias, says, For I will show him, I will show Saul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul is called to suffer. He has caused much suffering for the name of Jesus. He would now suffer much for the name of Jesus. The persecution Saul led would now be turned and directed at him. The persecutor now becomes the persecuted. We see this a couple times already in this passage, right? There's a threat of him being killed, verse 23. So he's in the city of Damascus. There, there's the threat of him being killed, right? The city he had been traveling to. That threat was so great that he had to curl up in a basket, hiding out in the middle of the night to be lowered in a basket out the, the window, down the wall, so he could get away. This is how much Saul had been humbled. He's under a threat when he goes to Jerusalem of being killed there, right? The city in which he had caused so much harm. These people threatening him, wanting to kill him, could even be the people who were partnered with him in the killing of Stephen a few years earlier. It could be the very same people. Again, the threat was so great that they had to send him away, sneak him away and send him to a faraway place. Tarsus was miles and miles away. In 2 Corinthians 11, we read about all that he endured, all the suffering, the, the beatings and the lashings and the shipwrecks and the anxiety of the ministry. Remember, this was all for the sake of the gospel in the name of Jesus. This extraordinary life all of a sudden doesn't sound so appealing anymore, does it? Saul was saved a hardship in this life. Now you also must be aware that there's a cost to following Jesus. Jesus says you will be hated by all and persecuted for his name. Who's ready for it? 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15.20, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But along with that, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, 9, We are persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Saul was saved in order to suffer 
that the gospel might go forth to the Gentiles and all around the world. Last thing we'll look at briefly, the wonder of the church. Wonder of the church. Saul was out to destroy the church. Jesus asked him, why do you persecute me? Right? He didn't say my church. Why do you persecute me? Jesus here reveals he is intimately united with his church. To persecute the church is to persecute Christ himself. And this institution of the church that Saul was out to destroy is what he would then give his life to, right? The building of the church. So there's nothing more precious in God's sight than his church, right? Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Jesus gave his life for the church. There's nothing more precious in God's sight than his church. We see the church uh, in this passage. Ananias was needed, a Christian coming to help uh, Saul to restore him. Saul was with the disciples. He was with uh, the disciples in Damascus, a good place for new believers to be. Right? The disciples assisted Paul in escaping. Barnabas, a brother, brought Saul to the apostles in Jerusalem when they weren't too sure about him. Saul went in, among, in and out among them. He was involved in the church. There was unity. This is what it should look like for a new convert, a new believer. Right? You have a sinner, one who is caught up in sin. They are saved by God through faith, and they come and join the church in fellowship together. That's what it should look like. The normal church has extraordinary value. Right? This is, this is a, a wonder. It's a mystery. God works through his church. Right? So how do you view the church? How do you view the church? Do you recognize the, the wonder of it? Do you see that God works through the simplicity of regular people gathering together in the name of Christ? Or do you get bored with the church? Are you discontent with it? God has created you to be in fellowship together with other believers. And in so doing, God does his great work in you and through you. So never underestimate the value of a brother or sister in Christ and God's power at work in your life through them. God has created you to be in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. So learn to love the church. Learn to love it and value it more and more. Then verse 31, we kind of get a wrap-up description of where the church is at at this point in history. Right? The church all over the world is at peace. Why is it at peace? Well, first, the gospel's greatest opponent is now its greatest advocate. That's helpful, right? But more importantly, they're at peace because they have Jesus Christ. They have the Prince of Peace, right? And he brings peace into their lives. The church is being built up, we see. God gave this time of peace in order to continue growing and building his church. It multiplied, and they are walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. May it be the same for us, the wonder of the church. Let's pray. Father God, again, we worship you, our great God. Thank you for all your great work, even in Saul, 
even in the spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles, even in the gospel spreading all the way down through, uh, through location and through time, even unto us. A bunch of normal sinners who you then chose to save by your grace through faith. Glory to you for that, God. Thank you so much for the salvation we have, this great salvation we have in Christ. Thank you that this salvation is not temporary, but it is eternal. It will never end. Even though these bodies will, will wear out and die someday, we have eternal life with Christ. What could be better? God, help us learn to love and appreciate this salvation more and more. And at the same time, help us to learn to love and appreciate and value the church more and more. God, may you continue your great work in us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.